Welcome back to Red Star Radio. You're joining us today for another update on the Ukraine-Russia war, or more aptly, the Russia-NATO war, which happens to take place on the territory of the country formerly known as Ukraine, now a human sacrifice to appease the failing god of U.S. imperialism, unfortunately enough. Today we're going to start off by looking, as we normally do, at the situation on the front lines as far as it can be discerned, before looking at some wider questions and concluding with some questions from listeners that were uh, provoked by last week's episodes. But first, a look at the front lines. Quick details first, and in the town of Belgorovka in the Lukansk People's Republic, this is between Siversk and Lysyshansk, the Russian army has occupied the town almost in its entirety and is now concluding the process of driving the Ukrainian forces out. And also in Belogorka, which is in the Kherson Oblast, between Andievka and Davidov Brod, uh, the Russian army is apparently conducting uh, final operations there to secure control over that town. So two towns that the Russians are securing control over there. And other things, there is a serious clash in the area around Ugladar, which is where the Russians have been trying to advance to for the last few days. And the Russian offensive is bogged down, apparently, because the Ukrainians have a superior firing position for their artillery, and there are complaints from Russian military commentators, again, nothing confirmed so far, that the Russians didn't go in with enough men, that they uh, jumped the gun, that they went in too early because the ground isn't frozen yet, the ground's a muddy swampy quality which is difficult to move men and arms over difficult to tell at this stage what you're getting uh, from the ugladar area particularly from the village of pavlovka which is in the approaches to ugladar you're getting a lot of uh, speculation a lot of leaking from both sides ironically enough both sides uh, though that you would usually claim victory now both ukrainian and russian sources claiming that there's heavy casualties and the fighting there is absolutely appalling it probably is uh, this is a war which is descending into ever greater brutalities as wars always do so it's something to keep an eye on we will know more in the coming days uh, certainly uh, it seems that the russian offensive has stalled for now and that the ukrainians are holding up there albeit with heavy losses so this is where we turn to our regular update on the two areas that potentially are the most important at this stage which is uh, Bakhmut as the Ukrainians call it or Artyomovsk as the Russians call it. So far they are reporting today that the encirclement of the city center continues by the Wagner group troops and by support from the Russian army units of the Donetsk People's Republic and further reports that the Ukrainians are almost completely encircled there. The Wagner troops are moving building by building, clearing out entrenched Ukrainian positions, which if you've seen some of the footage of the Wagner troops in action, this is one of the things they seem to excel at, to my rather inexpert eyes. But if you look at some of the other uh, areas they've been in action uh, in uh, since the beginning of the war, this is one of the things that they specialize in. They, I've seen footage of them moving relatively quickly house to house, um, throwing grenades into openings, moving in, killing those inside, moving on to the next house with a 
from what, what I could tell from the videos that I've seen, a high degree of efficiency. And that seems to be what they are doing in Artyomovsk or Bakhmut, depending upon which pronunciation or which term you want to use for that particular city. So the advance slowly continues there, as I've been saying for quite a lot of these updates, but it seems to be a method of fighting which is working very well for the Russians. Now in Kherson, which is of course the big one uh, that's been the subject of so many uh, column inches, and to use the old speak, or um, inches on the computer screen or tablets to use the new speak. And there has been talk and talk and talk of another Ukrainian offensive there. To give the background for those of you who maybe are not familiar with it, there was an attempted Ukrainian offensive here back in September, so two months ago now, where the Ukrainians advanced with a force of around about 10,000 men at the entrenched Russian positions. There was a lot of intense fighting there. And again, depending upon the estimates, the number the Russian sources were claiming that were killed and wounded was as high as 8,000 killed and wounded. Uh, 6,000 wounded, 2,000 dead is what I heard. But again, Ukrainian numbers on this are very hard to come by. The Ukrainians do not release these kind of estimates. And if the numbers of their casualties are anything like accurate, for very good reason. The Ukrainians, you losing so many men and having so many more men crippled and permanently injured, this is something that you don't want getting out as far as you possibly can if you're in, you're in the middle of this kind of war. So that offensive petered out. It led to the Kharkov offensive in the north, which saw more success because the Russians just simply withdrew and didn't defend the area. And so we, now we have another attempted ass assault on Kherson, apparently. This has been talked about and talked about for, it must be three weeks now, that the Ukrainians were going to sweep in and drive the Russians out of Kherson city. Uh, the new Russian commander, General Surovikin, in the one interview he's given so far, talked about it being difficult and there would be need to be potentially difficult decisions made there. But everything he's done since then implies that they more intend to stand and fight there than to withdraw. There is now a map circulating which seems to be quite reliable from Russian military sources showing that there are three heavily entrenched lines of Russian defense, the front line, and then two additional lines be behind that, right up to the edge of the city itself. And that there are um, in incredibly dense fortifications being built around and in the city. There has been a territorial defense unit recruited from men inside Kherson city, all of which implies that not only the Russians intend to make a fight of it, but they might actually quite want the Ukrainians to try and go in there in, in heavy numbers to inflict uh, large casualties upon them. Now, the thing about this is, of course, this seems to be an opinion that is shared by the Ukrainian armed forces commanders who don't seem to be willing to go for it, despite apparent urgings from the White House in the form of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, if you don't know him, he was previously most famous for running Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign right into losing to Donald Trump. So clearly the guy you want on your team, you know, who's advising you to carry out this assault. It would seem that the Ukrainian commanders think that this is a trap. Zelensky has commented on it, that it might be a trap. And given the amount of men um, out of the reserves that are now deployed there, the amount of heavy artillery that seems to be deployed there, the multiple defensive lines, it would seem that the Ukrainians would need 
an overwhelming force to go in there and with a chance of succeeding. So why the hell does the White House keep wanting this is an interesting question. Partly for the same reason that they've wanted everything, which is to be able to present footage to congressmen and senators to say, look, what we're doing is working. Marvelous victory. Look, we've taken Kherson City. And they wanted this before the midterms. Midterms are now tomorrow, so it doesn't seem like they're going to get it unless there's something incredibly dramatic happens overnight, which I can't see happening. Or they want to, and this is something which multiple Russian sources have speculated upon, largely through telegram channels, that the whole thing is a showpiece. That the idea is that the Ukrainians do a rapid advance into Kherson city, and then the uh, the idea being that the, the Ukrainians will then say, well, n- now we can start negotiating. And that's what apparently Sullivan was doing when he was flying back and forth into Kiev and into other places, saying, well, take Kherson and then say you want to negotiate. But of course, Zelensky has already painted himself into a corner by saying there can be no negotiations with Putin. There's many uh, people far more hardline than him in the Ukrainian leadership who would probably kill him if he tried to negotiate with anybody. Certainly the um, various different hardline factions in the British government, upon whom Zelensky is heavily dependent, don't want him to do that either. It seems that the US government is being torn in different directions because some of them realize that there's something bad coming up when the Russians are finished uh, doing all their reinforcing and all of their mobilized troops are ready to go. And uh, this could lead to the collapse of the Ukrainian state and a catastrophe within Europe and a visible and horrific defeat being inflicted upon the Biden administration and the Democrats as the ruling party, which the Republicans will opportunistically try to exploit when they come into office. And then we'll probably try to use this as further material to impeach Biden. All seems very shallow motivations. That's because it is. But also the Ukrainians clearly see that the... uh, that there is a problem for them, which is that every one of their assaults so far, and the, the commanders will know this, General Zaluzny will know this, the commander of the Ukrainian armed forces, he will know the heavy casualties that have actually been inflicted upon his forces in that Kherson offensive and up in the Kharkov offensive, which was the big success, but apparently didn't lead to anything serious in terms of Russian casualties, but saw thousands upon thousands of casualties, apparently, um, well, in the Ukrainian armed forces. So knowing all of this, Zaluzny will be very unwilling to commit to this full-on offensive. But the other question is, well, what other moves do they have now? Do they sit there and wait, dig in further for the Russians to begin their advance? That would be more sensible in some ways. And it's what uh, Zaluzny was apparently pushing for from the beginning, which is to withdraw from the most heavily contested areas in Donbass and dig in in another defensive line and try to hold there. And that advice has been rejected by the uh, Zelensky government on the advice of the NATO countries because they thought that they could inflict defeats upon Russia that would lead to Putin's ousting, which has not worked. So, again, yet again, it's another case of Ukrainian policy being driven by uh, the needs the political needs of their paymasters in this case the united states um the british although the british government's policy remains that of um attack everything all the time uh, but only do so if we don't actually have to risk anything more details on that will be forthcoming in the interview we've got coming out tomorrow with the investigative journalist kit clarenberg who 
spoke to me today about some of the stories he's been working on recently regarding the British government's strategy in the Ukraine war. But the Kherson example will continue to rumble on because it seems to be the place that they have in mind for some kind of offensive, even if the Ukrainian armed forces leaders don't really want to do it now. Other than that, it's just a question of the of well, what are they going to? Where else are they going to go? They keep doing probing attacks in some areas up in Donetsk, but these all keep getting blown away with very heavy casualties. So the other thing that emerged today was it leaked out that there might be a Ukrainian plan to evacuate Kiev uh, because of the power failures there and the fact that they won't be able to keep the population warm or fed over the winter. Now, this could be a real story, or it could be the Zelensky government essentially threatening uh, the Europeans to give them more money, otherwise they will basically herd their own population towards the borders of Poland and the Czech Republic and Hungary and dump them on them, which would essentially be the Ukrainian states, Ukrainian nations, government, collapsing itself which would be bizarre. I mean, I think it's primarily a negotiation tactic on behalf of the Ukrainian leadership to get more out of the uh, the NATO countries in terms of certainly money to keep things going. But it certainly seems that the Russian attacks on the power system are bearing fruit. They are placing an increasingly unbearable pressure on the Ukrainians' ability to actually keep the lights on. So... The, the Ukrainians would try and then leverage more out of the Europeans is not a surprise, given that the Ukrainians have been denied their NATO entry, which they kept saying that they were going to get any time now, and they get, kept being told no. The EU entry is on the back burner in perpetuity, so now Zelensky says, well, I want at least a billion dollars a month for a billion euros a month, I think it is, to essentially not force my civilian population to go on a long march into Europe which would create many political problems for uh, even the most rabidly anti-Russian governments, which are, of course, the Poles and the Czechs to a certain extent. So probably a game being played by Zelensky here, but it reflects some desperation on the Ukrainian government's part and the fact that they are running out of options now. If this glorious assault on Kherson just comes to nothing, or if, he, if it either doesn't happen or they do it and it's badly defeated then as the question comes up again of how much longer they can keep all this up. So interesting, if of course horrifying stories, to keep a close eye on as time goes on. Now moving to other news that is related to the conflict in Ukraine, which is of course the recent visit by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, the man described by the former Ukrainian ambassador to Germany as an offended liver sausage. He recently made a trip to China to essentially engage in a long or a day-long period of groveling to the Chinese leadership. And there's a very good reason that Olaf Scholz did this. It's because that the Germans are in economic trouble and need to find sources of investment. They also need to preserve the relationship with the Chinese that was built up over the past 40 years by successive German chancellors, starting with the SPD leader from the 1970s and early 1980s, Helmut Schmidt, who, along with the former paramount leader of China, Deng Xiaoping, launched the first joint venture between China and a German company in the form of Volkswagen in uh, the late 1970s uh, by the building of a joint car plant in uh, China in one of the first special economic zones. 
So this is a important trading relationship that has been going on for nearly five decades now. And it's one that has been called into question by the actions of the United States. But disturbing, it would seem, to the Chinese leaders is the actions of the German rulers when it came to the question of Russia. And the statement made by Xi to uh, Olaf Scholz is quite interesting. Xi essentially tells Scholz that uh, the recent attitude expressed by the United States in regard to decoupling from China is clearly something which the Chinese leadership has, shall we say, not appreciated in the slightest, but is something that they are very keen to avoid being uh, repeated by the European powers. Uh, the Chinese clearly also get uh, a good deal of economic uh, gains out of the relationship with the Germans and want to retain that. And Xi told Schultz that the relationship that had been built up over many years could be very easily damaged and would be very difficult to repair. And that he hoped that uh, Schultz would look to actually steer uh, German and EU policy in an independent direction and not be subject to what Xi referred to as third parties uh, imposing their will on it. Now, it's clear what he's referring to there is the role of the United States in the European Union. And it's been no secret that the Chinese, although they have maintained this official line of saying that they wish to see the crisis in Ukraine solved by diplomatic means, that they have been alarmed by the uh, complete capitulation of the European leaders to the most extreme elements in the US administration. And this is something that European diplomats then started complaining about because they said that the Chinese leadership was basically treating them as if they were American vassal states, which effects, in effect they are. And Schultz clearly knows that he's in a bit of a hole because German um, industrial confidence has been hit. Uh, production is down in terms of the industrial sector of the economy due to the pressure upon the German industrial sector due to the sanctions regime. And Xi makes uh, explicit reference to this, um, or as explicit as this usual diplomatic talk gets in one of his statements that is available on the Chinese Foreign Ministry's website. Towards the end of the readouts from the Chinese Foreign Ministry, they report Xi as saying, President Xi reaffirmed China's support for Germany and Europe to play an important role in facilitating peace talks and build a balanced, effective and sustainable security architecture in Europe. Under the current circumstances, the international community should support all efforts conducive to the peaceful settlement of the Ukraine crisis and call on relevant parties to remain rational and exercise restraint, start direct engagement as quickly as possible and create conditions for the resumption of talks, oppose the threat or use of nuclear weapons, advocate that nuclear weapons cannot be used and that nuclear weapons, nuclear wars must not be fought and prevent a nuclear crisis in Eurasia. Work together to keep global industrial and supply chains stable and forestall disruption to international cooperation in energy, food, finance and other areas and consequent damage to global economic recovery, especially in the economic and stability, fiscal stability of developing countries, and make joint efforts to tide civilians in areas affected by the crisis through the winter and improve the humanitarian situation to avoid a humanitarian crisis on a bigger scale. Now, 
if you read that back and when uh, Xi's statement uh, covers things like the food crisis and the energy crisis, he's clearly making reference there to the US-led sanctions regime, which the Germans have, of course, joined. Uh, because, of course, the Russians haven't put sanctions on um, as such. They've continued to supply energy, continued to offer to supply food even to the developing world, even when, of course, the grain deal that they signed which is supposed to facilitate the export of Russian grain that has been frozen at European ports, has not been honoured due to pressure from the United States. And so when Xi talks about destabilisation and the creation of a food crisis and energy crisis, he's obviously making reference to the United States because it's them that's making all the moves there. And when he makes uh, the reference to Europe uh, uh, playing an independent role and uh, looking to build a balanced and effective and sustainable security architecture in Europe. He's referring there to the fact that the, it is the Chinese government's view, which Xi is expressing, that the Europeans should sign some kind of lasting arrangement with the Russians and that they should do this independently, because that's what he's calling for there. Again, this is all couched in diplomats' language, though for diplomats' language, this statement for the, that Xi makes to Schultz is much more direct than you would usually expect, and it's a lot more blunt than you usually expect. It's only slightly disguised. He doesn't say, get America out of Europe, but um, he might as well. And so it's clear what the Chinese view is there. Schultz then come up with a load of sort of bland nonsense, but basically um, Xi is telling Schultz, what the hell are you doing? stop um, following around the Americans like a like a tame dog. Um, we expect uh, Europe to be a reliable partner for us. And he also talks about the fact that uh, China's policy towards Germany has been consistent in seeking trade and engagement. And he doesn't expect chi uh, Germany's policy towards China, particularly with relation to, I think he's referring to Taiwan, to change. Because, of course, the most rabidly pro-US part of the German coalition government is, of course, the wretched Green Party, which seems to be playing the role at the moment as of uh, a bunch of aggressive militarists when it comes to relations with the Russians and the Chinese. In fact, the, the Greens and the Baerbock and that lunatic Harbeck seem to have about the same attitude towards China and Russia as the more extreme elements in the British military do, and the British intelligence does. Very strange how that worked out. Hippies and militarists go hand in hand together. But the most important thing about this meeting um, happening, and the fact that uh, Schultz went there with a bunch of German industrialists, is because Germany is facing a recession. Germany is facing an energy crisis brought about by, of course, their own short-sightedness and stupidity, as the fact that they got dragged along with the U.S. into creating this crisis with Russia, because, of course, certain elements within the German political system are not only completely beholden to the United States, but also wish to see a regime change in Russia and fooled themselves that they could get it via this war in Ukraine. And now they're facing a severe problem. Now the, uh, the winter is coming. The uh, cost of energy keeps going up. Robert Harbeck's plans to replace Russian uh, oil and gas with other alternatives are not bearing fruit. Schultz is getting worried and wants to avoid a in industrial and therefore economic collapse. And therefore he's seeking investment. And where do you get investment? Well, you go to the Chinese because they're the ones with an awful lot of capital to invest. 
And so, of course, the Chinese have already bought a German uh, microchip pro uh, processor uh, production company, and they have also uh, taken out a significant stake in a German port recently. So they're clearly looking to make investments, and German industry needs that investment. So it's clear that German industry wanted this meeting to happen and so therefore sent a significant delegation over there. It's worth emphasizing, though, just what's going on in Germany because there's a lot of, I would regard, uh, false interpretations being put around by many people who are taking the Russian side um, in this. And you, if you've been listening to this, you'll know my own views on that. But I think it's important to deal with the reality here. Many people are saying that it's because of the high energy price prices that this is causing the deindustrialization of Germany. And, of course, there is some truth to that. It is increasing the pressure on German industry in terms of energy bills and energy shortages. So that much is true. However, to say that this is the reason why Germany is deindustrializing is to miss the point entirely, because Germany has been deindustrializing uh, for a number of years now. And this goes back to at least the mid-2000s, when the rate of profit for German industry started dipping, because that's um, the one of the aspects of Marx's theory which keeps being proven correct, and it has been proven correct in the case of Germany. Now, Germany is always held up by British leftists as a place that has retained its industrial base. Now, it has slightly more than Britain has. In fact, if you look at the current uh, German uh, balance of industry between the different sections of the economy, you'll see that, of course, Germany has retained significantly its industrial base than Britain has. So it's not as great a difference, though, as you would be led to believe just looking at the stories you see. Of course, German industrial base accounts for around about 26% of German GDP, so just over a quarter of it. But services have been growing in terms of the proportion of GDP they provide. So service sector jobs um, have been growing ever more in the, across the last 20 years. And the proportion of GDP that that provides to Germany is over 63%. In the United Kingdom, uh, of course, the manufacturing base is l is lower. So Germany, it provides about a quarter of GDP. In this country, it's less than a fifth. So it is smaller, but not that much smaller. And the services are, of course, higher here in terms of a proportion of GDP they provide every year. It's over 71% there. But it's not the vast gap that you would expect if you were reading like how the hymns of praise that the British uh, soft left sing to Germany, because Germany has been deindustrializing over the course of the past uh, 30 years or so in terms of its actual um, manufacturing base and what it produces. It has been going down from its high point in the early 1990s. And added to this, Germany, even though it had... Um, very high employment numbers and very good employment numbers over the last uh, 20 years. Much of that in more recent years has come from growth in casualized employment, which is very important. Now, it's very important to realize where the growth sectors are in the German economy, because you have to reckon with how the German economy is, is behaving in exactly the way that Karl Marx outlined that a capitalist economy would develop all those years ago, back in the 19th century. So, German employment, and this is according to a study conducted by the EU itself back in uh, 2019, so this is pre-COVID. Now, G employment numbers in Germany uh, in 2019 were a record high of 45 million. 
with an, an official unemployment rate of around about 2.2 million. However, this uh, record employment did not equal to a higher proportion of uh, GDP going to the actual working class, of course, because what had actually happened since the reunification of Germany in 1990 was that the actual inequalities in German society had skyrocketed. Now, of course, West Germany, the old Federal Republic of Germany, was never exactly a workers' paradise, but it has rocketed upwards in terms of uh, reaching nearly British levels of inequality in recent years. So, according to this study in 2019, the top 1% of uh, earners in Germany received nearly as much as the bottom 50%. So, that's 1% of people have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50% of the German population, which is an astonishing statistic. That's on a par with what we've got here in Britain. And Britain's always regarded as this neoliberal hellhole in comparison to Germany, but the inequality rates are becoming around about the same. So the wealthiest 10% of Germans own 65% of all assets in Germany. Again, this is reaching nearly uh, British levels of inequality there. And it shows that the exact same process has been going on inside Germany has, has, has been going on inside Britain, which is increasing inequality. But not only that, the German ruling class looking to, first of all, shrink the industrial base and outsource production to other areas. And if you look at uh, where a lot of the parts for German uh, manufacturing are made, a lot of it is made in China and shipped to Germany and assembled there. So uh, there's an awful lot of outsourcing and offshoring of production that has gone on inside Germany itself. So the other thing to um, look at here is that even though employment numbers in 2019, and this has remained largely unchanged through COVID, were at a record high. Now, nearly half of the workforce in Germany don't have what would be regarded as, in the old days, a typical employment contract, so a full-time contract of employment. Over half of the working population, so um, over 20 million people, have what's known as atypical employment. And that's because they work part-time, they're either uh, or they're subcontracted, or they are classified as freelancers. And even though they have in high employment numbers, having a full-time job in Germany, much like it is in Britain, is not a way out of poverty. Uh, in fact, one-third of those living in poverty in Germany are in full-time employment. So this is a picture which is being replicated in all of the advanced capitalist nations, which is that the employment picture is changing. The way that people are employed is changing through relentless pressure from the capitalist class. Now, what does this all this mean? It means that the, the growth sectors in the German economy aren't in well-remunerated manufacturing jobs. It's in casualized employment, low-wage employment, often in the service sector, often in areas that are almost entirely non-union, the so-called gig economy. And this is growing and growing in Germany and has been the growth area of employment. Now, the question is, of course, why? And it comes back to, of course, our old friend, the, the rate of profit falling and the capitalist class looking for other areas in which they can get more out of labor in terms of being exploitable. So one way is, of course, you outsource manufacturing. The other way is, of course, that you um, secure advantageous trade positions for yourself in order to make uh, imports, particularly of food, cheaper. And the German capitalists have been investing increasingly in land overseas where 
agricultural products can be grown on the cheap and then brought back into Germany again. So that's another way of keeping wages down. But the growth sectors of employment being in areas that are casualized is, of course, a classic trick that all of the industrialized um, or formerly industrialized, now deindustrializing countries of the advanced capitalist world have been trying. If you look back at um, the episode we did when we were discussing Abenomics, one of the things that the late former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, was doing was he was looking for ways in order to reinvigorate Japanese capitalism of increasing the rate of exploitation of the working class. And one of the ways they did that was, of course, they pushed uh, for more women to enter the workforce uh, under the guise of, you know, hey, it's empowering. But it was done in actual fact because there would be a lower wage uh, part of the workforce that could be um, have more profit extracted from its labor. And by uh, casualizing the uh, employment relationship almost everywhere they possibly could to force more and more people into some kind of um, employment, even if it's marginal, even if it's part time. And this is a classic way of the capitalists doing what they always try to do, which is increase the rate of exploitation of labor, bring in new layers into the workforce, push more for more women to enter the workforce in low wage employment, um, push for even people who are disabled to be shoved into the workforce, even if it's part time for a few hours a week, anything which increases the labor force that can be potentially exploited. And the other big thing, of course, in Germany was that in 2014 to 15, Angela Merkel, in a what is being described in nauseating terms by uh, the liberals and the soft left as a great act of compassion, brought in a million people from, well, mostly Syria, in order to apparently save them from the Syrian civil war, which the German government was playing a huge part in fueling. But in reality, these people moved straight into the so-called gig economy jobs, into casualized employment, and suddenly the German capitalists got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new workers who would move into the casualized sector of the economy, the non-union sector of the economy, in order that they could be more readily exploited. And this is the picture with German capitalism. Increased deindustrialization, increased um, exploitation of labor via the usage of more hyper-exploitative working practices, the growth in the non-union sector, the um, provision of new jobs only on the basis of them being on um, temporary or casualized contract basis, all of which is designed to increase the labor force, increase the rate of exploitation, put pressure upon the parts of the workforce that are still unionized and do still have decent terms of employment by holding over them a vast piece of the proletariat, a vast section of the proletariat that is non-unionized and would happily work those jobs for less, or at least the capitalists hope that they would, so that they can casualize the employment contracts further. They can strip out things like pensions and sick pay and all the other costs that the capitalists hate paying and basically uh, bring in a more hyper-exploitable workforce that will not have to be awarded those things because they've uh, broken the uh, contracts with the unions that used to provide them. That will be the long-term aim of German industry, for instance. So when you see explanations going around saying, oh, well, Germany's being deindustrialized, this was happening anyway. This has been happening for over 20 years, since, in fact, 30 years, since reunification, the pressures towards deindustrialization have increased because suddenly, again, thanks to the disappearance of the socialist bloc, 
German capital had the ability to go and invest elsewhere for uh, it, the production of much of its um, supply chain, and it duly did so and took jobs out of Germany. And so, therefore, what was left was the same thing that happened in Britain, a push of the German workforce into casualized, hyper-exploitable employment in the services sector. And this has been going on for a long time. So, to reiterate the point, yes, the energy crisis produced by the sanctions regime did have an effect on German capitalism. It is causing industrial slowdown and a decline in production. But it's not what caused deindustrialization in Germany. This is the process of capitalism itself, which always pushes towards uh, being a mere movement of money. As I'm quoting fondly from Capital Volume 2 at the moment, I'm going to quote it again. As Marx and Engels identify in that volume, the pressure in capitalism has been from the earliest stage to move from a circuit of money to commodity to money to just a circuit of money to money to cut out the production bit to minimize the production bit because the capitalists find that of course to be very capital intensive so this is the pressure this is the pressure in every capitalist nation everywhere it always tends towards deindustrialization and it always has that tendency within it especially when the rate of profit drops so again these explanations that are going around uh, it was all the sanctions regime that caused this no this was just uh, the latest phase in an ongoing process that has been there within German capitalism for a very long time. And there, you should be wary of those, like Michael Hudson, to be completely honest, who are trying to chalk this all up to the latest phase. I mean, this is a what I would regard as a weakness in Hudson's analysis, which is that he says that industrial capitalism is the a better form of capitalism. It's the form of capitalism that the classical political economists meant to uh, be, be the dominant system in the world. And it's just this um, evil financialization which has come along and ruined everything. Of course, financialization, the move to just money, money, the move, the move to cut out production, the move to minimize costs, the move to just move money around, that's been there from the very, very beginning. That's a core part of capitalism and it's one of Marx's most crucial insights in helping us to understand how we got to this place of the most industrialized countries always going through the process of deindustrialization as capital seeks to minimize its outlay and maximize its returns leading of course to the ludicrous situations you see in Britain where it's just literally entire economic plans cooked up to preserve the money to money circuit but that's where Germany is right now and, of course, they are looking to save themselves with infusions of investment from China. And as I've mentioned in the looking at Xi's comments, the Chinese are, of course, wanting to invest, but are saying to the Germans, well, only if you essentially steer an independent course and don't just follow the Americans around like a bunch of tame dogs. Well... We'll see if uh, Xi's warnings are heeded there. Certainly the German industrialists want to heed them. But then again, if things keep going wrong, the German industrialists will pack up and head to China or to Indonesia or to many of the other Southeast Asian countries that can provide a highly educated but much cheaper workforce. So that's um, a look at what's going on with Germany. And I'll now move to uh, a question from a listener that was prompted by last week's broadcasts. And this question comes from George on the Patreon site. And he asked the following. 
I'm curious what you may think of the suggestion that Russia might have had other options beside the military one. For example, using its power over the European fuel supply by threatening sanctions in order to leverage some concessions out of NATO or the EU. It seems conceivable that might have at least had some effect on whether those bodies would have let Ukraine join them, though perhaps not on the Ukraine's policies towards the separatist regions. If you do address it, one aspect is obviously the cost-benefit of the option taken versus those not taken. E.g., maybe this way to, they keep Ukraine out of NATO, but at the cost of an impending expansion of NATO to Sweden and Finland. So, it's worth considering this, because it's, it's a valid point that's raised there. So, was there other options available to the Russians? Could they have leveraged their role in the energy system? Now, that it's possible they could have made those uh, threats to European energy. They could have, uh, Putin could have told Schultz, well, you either make Ukraine abide by the Minsk Accords and keep them out of NATO, or uh, we cut off the energy supply to Europe. Now, it's, a po it's possible. Uh, would it have generated a uh, positive response? In my view, probably not, because the key player really, when it came to Ukraine pre this year, in terms of them not abiding by the Minsk Accords, the key player was the United States, who was not dependent upon energy supplies from Russia. Now, yes, the Russian oil supply into the world energy market uh, does play its role in keeping prices lower in the United States at the pump, but uh, the United States would not have seen that as a threat towards itself. Uh, though they would have, uh, of course, exploited it politically for all that it's worth. I think the reason why that wasn't followed was because one of the things that the Russians have been trying to do with their energy strategy in terms of how they sell and who they sell to is that they want to portray themselves as the country who is a reliable supplier and partner in the energy field, regardless of political circumstances, and that they unlike the United States, will not try to use uh, their energy supplies or their supply of energy to various different countries as a weapon. And if you look at what the government uh, of Russia has been trying to do across the really the last 20 years that Putin has been part of the government, either as president or prime minister, and that, of course, Sergei Lavrov has been at the foreign ministry, they've been trying to set themselves up as the, the opposite of the United States. The, uh, they say the United States comes in and demands X, Y, and Z from you. We just want to trade with you and build up an economic relationship. By what, trying to weaponize their energy supply to Europe, um, it would threaten the diplomatic strategy that Putin has been pursuing, which is that he has sought to say that, well, we're agreeing to supply energy, we're agreeing to supply grain, which just that the the Americans have tried to cut us out of the world market. And by using that method, he has been trying to build up a network of diplomatic relationships which would hold firm even in the event of a war. And so far, that has worked. I think that if they turned around and started trying to say that they would cut off their supplies, it would stymie or reverse the work that Putin and Lavrov and others had done in building up that Russian reputation as a reliable partner that does not make demands. Um, as long as you are prepared to buy at the market price, Russia is prepared to sell, no matter what difficulties there may be. 
And if you look at Putin's uh, speech and Q&A at the Valdai Club recently, you'll see that he continued upon that theme. The, and it's a theme that Xi was um, outlining in his comments to Schultz as well, that where there's differences, we should respectfully try and resolve them or basically agree to disagree. Uh, but where we can work together and uh, engage in trade together, we should always do so and not let the differences get in the way. This is the way in which they want to present themselves now. And I think that if they'd gone down the route of saying, keep Ukraine out of NATO or we cut you off, well, then the other thing would have happened is that the answer would have come back, well, Ukraine's not joining NATO. What are you talking about? Of course it's not joining NATO. The idea, as I've said before, was never that Ukraine would join NATO. I think that Ukraine was being manipulated by this promise and as the Ukrainian regime became ever more dependent upon foreign capital and ever more dependent upon foreign military aid and had its whole system of government designed and run by the United States. Remember, the United States had the biggest diplomatic presence in the world. Its biggest embassy in the world was in Kiev until February of this year. It had advisors attached to every single ministry. Um, its uh, think tanks and uh, front groups were designing everything in Kiev, even right down to the parking scheme, which was being designed by the National Endowment for Democracy. I kid you not, the paper's still online. So you can see um, that threats to the Europeans might not have produced anything, even in terms of pressure on Kiev. The US was running the show in Kiev. Yeah, the Europeans were in there too, contributing towards the building up of the Ukrainian armed forces, but they didn't have the sway here. And it is the US that has the sway here. Now, could, if Schultz and Macron had managed to come together before February of this year and say, you know what, Ukraine's not going to join NATO, we're going to block it, would that have resolved the issue? I would guess probably not, because it's not just the NATO issue when it comes to Ukraine, as you imply in the question. It's the fact of the, uh, the regions of what was Ukraine breaking away, the ongoing civil war, uh, became uh, which became a war that the Russians were directly involved in, and the political pressure inside Russia itself for the government of Russia to do something about the um, repressive measures taken by the Kiev regime against Russian speakers in Ukraine. And that's something which can't be underestimated either, that the uh, Russian uh, population were putting increasing pressure on the Russian government to actually do something about this, and that they couldn't back away from that. So given all of those uh, particular circumstances that were in place in February of this year, the only way this could have stopped um, going ahead is if the US had actually negotiated over that treaty that the Russians presented at the end of 2021, which called for a withdrawal of US and other uh, Western European forces from uh, the Eastern European NATO countries back to the dividing line that existed before 1997 and the beginning of NATO expansion into the former Warsaw Pact countries. What the Russians called for there was not the removal of Poland and the Baltics from NATO, but the withdrawal of US forces and, of course, US and British missiles from Eastern Europe. So this was their way of opening a negotiation on the entirety of NATO's advance up to the borders of Russia since the mid-1990s. So really what this is, is a series of issues which have been a problem for the Russian government for 25 years coming to a head 
brought to a head by the increasing uh, Ukrainian aggression, again, at U.S. urging to um, make further problems within the Donbass and possibly threaten Crimea. Again, it's a perfect storm, which in the end left the military option as the only one the Russians saw as being viable for them. And as I've outlined in previous episodes, the plan was to actually hit Ukraine hard and fast and hope that either the Maidan regime collapsed, which it nearly did, but then secured itself thanks to uh, uh, guarantees being given to it by Britain and the United States. But also, if that didn't work, then to force a negotiated settlement, which saw Kiev give up uh, Donetsk and Lukansk, and then essentially guarantee that they wouldn't join NATO. And again, Zelensky was ready to sign that, apparently, but again, the influence of the British and the United States governments, and also the Europeans, let's not leave them out, made sure that that didn't happen. So the Russian plan has had to evolve to a maximalist approach, of course, thanks to the actions of the US and the British and the Europeans. Now, cost-benefit analysis, uh, to turn to the final part of the question, is keeping Ukraine out of NATO, and I think now we're in a stage where it's not just that Ukraine isn't going to join NATO, it's that Ukraine is going to cease to exist. Um, So it's no longer going to be that kind of problem. But is it worth Sweden and Finland joining NATO in order to get that? In the end, I think the cost benefits of that are going to be weighed by the Russian government and Putin himself in favor of what they've done. I think that they now regard this as a war for the future security of the Russian state. And that's why Putin is describing it as a civil war that will only be concluded when the Ukrainian state has collapsed and has been absorbed into Russia. And they're going to do that, and they're going to take their time to do it. And does it matter that Sweden and Finland have joined NATO? Well, Sweden was almost in it anyway. I mean, they were NATO in all but name. Finland was increasingly the same thing. The only thing that might become a problem would be uh, the fact that the United States would seek to put uh, intermediate-range nuclear weapons and nuclear missile systems in one or both of them. And uh, the governments have now given... Uh, contradictory statements as to the potential for that happening. The bigger question of this, though, is, yes, that would be a problem for the Russians, but there's no land dispute there. There's no, uh, even though Finland was, of course, part of the Russian Empire back in the day, there's no Russian-speaking minority in Finland that I'm aware of, or if it is, it's tiny, that uh, with a long-running border dispute, the borders of Finland and uh, Russia were actually settled in treaties between Finland and the Soviet Union at the end of World War II, and there's no remaining dispute there. So there's nothing that could ignite a potential conflict between the two. There's no um, Maidan event going to take place in Helsinki, which is going to bring um, some uh, a regime to power that is more insanely anti-Russian than the one that's there already. So the the potential for that kind of conflict doesn't exist there. Yes, the intermediate-range missiles might be a problem, but one of the things that the Kremlin is now plainly considering is the idea that if the longer this goes on, the less viable NATO looks. And also, the longer this goes on, and the more the United States reveals itself to be, to use an American term, all hat and no cattle, or to use a Northern English term, all mouth and no trousers, then the weaker NATO looks and the more useless NATO looks. And so 
the countries in the east of Europe will start to ask the question, well, what the hell are we in this for? Hungary's already asking that question. Uh, NATO's becoming a less and less appealing prospect. So, I mean, the Balkan governments had to rig the referendums or just not have them at all to get their populations shoved into NATO and the EU. So, again, the Russians think that this is going to be a war that will secure the future of their state. It'll secure it by absorbing probably all of Ukraine in the end, I would guess, unless the Poles do something dramatic and stupid in the West. And uh, the cost of the intermediate-range missiles on the border will be a cost that they can bear because if they prove that NATO is a paper tiger, a useless paper tiger, and the EU starts to disintegrate, then really the Russians are coming out ahead on every angle that's being played here as they would see it. And that's, of course, if uh, the plan that's been developed here uh, comes off. And I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. It's increasingly clear that for all the blustering and all the uh, shouting and screaming and jumping up and down that the U.S. has been doing, it doesn't have any intention of uh, risking its own forces in Ukraine. It wanted to make the Russians pay a very heavy penalty. It wanted to destroy the Russian system of alliances that they've built up. It wanted to isolate Russia economically and diplomatically and secure a potential regime change in the Kremlin. None of those things are going to happen now. So I think that the way that Putin sees it, and again, he said it was a civil war the other day when he had a meeting with some what I would describe as court historians in Russia who are going to come along and agree with him the same way Biden gets historians to agree with him. Um, but the reason why Putin invited them for this roundtable discussion was because he was outlining again the point of view he's been testing out for a number of years now, which is that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are essentially the same people and that this is basically a civil war. So given all of that, I think that the Russian government has made the calculation that this is now worth the gamble and worth the setback in terms of getting NATO on their border and that this is a cost that they can bear. And Given that the even The Economist is admitting that the Russian economy is now likely to grow in the near future and it has at least stabilized and the impact of sanctions has been absorbed without the catastrophe that the um, pessimists in Russia feared would occur, so far at least, then it's a gamble that could pay off. So I hope that answers the question there. Again, always uh, good to get these either on Patreon or on Twitter, or you can post them in the Telegram chat because that has a longer character limit. So far, Elon hasn't given us an elongated uh, Twitter format yet. So that brings us to the end of today's update. I'll be back again with another one of these tomorrow. But until then, thank you for listening, and I'll be speaking to you again soon. <laughs>